is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Coming up later is our lovely drift into bedtime feature, Slumber Time Stories, which this week is the concluding part of our Who Done It? Lost in the Great White. But first, we are very excited to bring you an all-new feature, which we have entitled Musings of the Moment. Now, in this section, we will be inviting some very eminent members of society to share a thought for the hour, or indeed, the whole day. And we very much hope that you will find these uplifting and thought-provoking. This week, we are delighted and indeed astonished to have a contribution from Professor Peva Ionyourself, who is a very distinguished emeritus professor of comparative pointlessness at the University of Mid-Albion. ARC presents Musings of the Moment with Professor Peva Ionyourself. was recently leaving a rather disappointing exhibition of medieval footwear, my eye was caught by the very last item. It was an ancient Nubian grave sock. But there were no hieroglyphs on it, just a little squiggle, rather like a small child's drawing of an electron microscope. It was found near the village of Quiet Munching in Sussex. No one knows how it got there. Scholars differ wildly in their views of this grave sock and its single word, if indeed word it be. It is thought by some to represent the word fnp, which does not occur in any known language. If fnp is a verb, it is doubtless an imperative and means die nastily. If it is a noun, it probably means holiday. If it is a preposition, then we are in trouble. Our knowledge of an entire civilization therefore rests upon a single word, and no one knows what it means. What all this suggests is that everything we do will ultimately be either destroyed or misinterpreted by those who come after us, or else just ignored completely. Take my ancestors, the Iron Yourselves, a brave old family with roots in the north of Albion. During the Industrial Revolution, the Iron Yourselves led the march of the pillowcases. They put pillowcases over their heads and charged at everyone, shouting, Iron Yourselves! It must have been terrifying. Yet the history books barely mention this heroic gesture. History is not written by the victors. They're far too busy celebrating. History is just a brutally random process of cultural forgetting. Imagine, if you will, that a meteor destroys most of Western civilization. All that remains are keep-left signs. What would intergalactic anthropologists of the future call us? The keep-left sign people. The rest of our civilization would have been wiped out, like a lost sock. 
What this means is that it doesn't matter a row of Mexican jumping beans what we do with our lives. Posterity doesn't give a flying fish about any of us. I find this a rather comforting thought. I hope that you do too, as you begin your irredeemably pointless day. Goodbye. Well, that certainly got me thinking. Tune in next week to hear another musing from someone very important indeed. But now on the light program, it's time for Slumbertime Stories. And this week, it's the concluding part of our exciting crime drama. Read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Part 2 of Lost in the Great White by Darren Callan. When he came to, Fitch was surprised to find himself lying on a not uncomfortable hospital bed in relatively warm and mercifully stable surroundings. Ah, our patient is recovering came warm, pleasant tones from off to one side, followed by a slightly more disconcerting Throw him overboard! that sounded like a screeching animal of some hideous demeanour. Fitch blinked to clear his vision and take in the smiling face of what was clearly a fit-looking, seafaring man of some description, complete with neatly trimmed dark beard and heavy naval sweater. Somewhat more puzzling was the bedraggled form of a stuffed and mouldy old parrot that seemed to be perched on the man's shoulder. It was an odd visage indeed. The rest of the room appeared to be a very well-appointed, if a little musty, ship's infirmary, replete with all the mod cons such a thing might offer. Chief Stoker First Class Marcus Flavius Octavian Hildengraf Smith. At your service, intoned said Seaman cheerfully. Call me Stanley if you like. Welcome to my boat. Take no notice of old Quentin Bigface here. With this, he tipped a wink towards the decrepit inanimate fowl on his shoulder. Then, without breaking metaphorical stride, and not really attempting to throw his voice as such, he added out of the side of his mouth, in the weird screeching bird voice, He's a baboon! A smelly baboon, I tell you! Since Fitch found himself rendered somewhat speechless by this, Stanley carried on undaunted. Your colleague Lily here tells me you've been looking for the king of all people, he stated jovially, and then squawked, Perfect! Not really having the strength or desire to get into the whole parrot situation, Fitch decided to focus more on the revelation of the oriental woman's name. How do you know our name's Lily? He growled. I told him naturally, explained Lily, in rather pleasing plummy tones. I assumed you were some kind of mad yokel who probably didn't have much grasp of English, she added, as she stepped forward into his line of sight. Sorry about all the pointing and so forth, 
Lily Fortitude is the name. King's agent, first class. She offered a strong and well-manicured hand, which Fitch shook somewhat groggily. Tobias Fitch, hired gun, was all he could offer in return. Very glad to make your acquaintance at last, she beamed. The stoker here has brought me up to date. Let me catch you up too. With this, she proceeded to explain that the vessel into which Fitch had walked at pace was in fact the enormous New Albion steamship and icebreaker, SS Unstoppable Progress, which had become rather inconveniently and extremely ironically stuck fast in the ice whilst exploring the Northern Passage, or the Great White, as it is commonly known, some five years or so before. The captain and most of the crew had set off in a burst of unrestrained optimism to fetch help, and never been seen since, leaving only the preposterously over-nomenclatured Chief Stoker Smith to look after things. Then, when the Stoker had popped out to answer a call of nature, she added, conspiratorially, that whilst the Stoker himself seemed right as rain, his parrot-fixated alter ego seemed to be as demented as a box of the proverbials. She helped Fitch to sit upright on the bed and fetched him an ice-cold glass of water, which he took gratefully. Am I right in assuming you, like me, were instructed to look for the king? Spot on, old chap. Expanding to her theme, she went on to explain how she had engineered an introduction to Snook and his conspirators, whilst posing as a passing diplomat and possible ally. Snook had even shown her around his giant airship craft before a traitor working in the ship's kitchens had blown her cover. It really is quite a vessel floating up there, nearly the size of a small town. Fitch grunted his acknowledgement of this. It's not going anywhere in a hurry, though, you know. She had his full attention now. Really? How do you know that? Well, I have this. And from nowhere in particular, she produced an ornate brass key and placed it into Fitch's outstretched hand. It's the ignition key, no less. During my tour, I managed to purloin it. Fitch didn't inquire how, but he was impressed up to a point. Very good, I'm sure. But I imagine they can hotwire it without too much delay. Perhaps, she smirked. But not without their only soldering iron. And with a flourish, she produced a gas-powered, heavy-duty brass soldering iron and tossed it onto the bed. Okay. Also impressive. But I still imagine... He didn't finish the sentence as she once again produced an even larger brass and copper object and tossed this also onto the bed with a heavier thump. What in the dickens is that? Oh, that. It's just their main relay fuse. Probably bought us at least another hour with that little lot. Fitch shook his head in both wonder and confusion. He was about to inquire just exactly how she had managed to purloin these items, and more to the point, exactly where on or about her person she had secreted them when Stoker Stanley and the parrot arrived back in the room with a cheery, Ah, you're up! And a rather more grotesque, Burn the witch's eyes! from the parrot. Fitch blinked and shook his head a few times. Quite unbelievably, 
it seemed that despite his concussion, the batshit crazy schizoid seaman and the seemingly implausibly light-fingered King's agents carrying on, a plan was actually being formed in his befuddled mind. Given Agent Fortitude's work, though, it would have to be put into action sharpish, so he hauled himself up onto his still betighted legs. Stanley, or whatever your name is, are there any weapons on this hulk of yours? Plenty, sparked up the seaman. What are you after? We have a full complement of rifles, pistols, flares, and of course the triple harpoon launchers in the bow. Of course. Fitch rubbed his hands eagerly. And the custard, added the parrot. Tell him about the custard. Get them all, barked Fitch, unfazed by thoughts of killer desserts. Before the seaman could act on his commands, though, he further inquired. This is a paddle steamer, is it not? Do your engines still run, Stoker? It is, and they do, sir. Although we'll not be going anywhere in a hurry. That won't be necessary. Fire them up, if you will, and prepare for full reverse on my command. Then bring the weapons to the bow as quickly as you like. Aye, aye, sir. The seaman saluted briskly and turned to go. His granny has no legs, shrieked the parrot in lieu of a more formal goodbye, and he was gone to his tasks. I assume this plan has a role for me, inquired Agent Fortitude, stepping forward lithely. Indeed, the most vital role of all. Make aft and set fire to anything and everything you can find. Before she could take this in, Fitch was already ushering her out the door. Speed here is vital, and you have the best of all of us, methinks. This first deed done, make haste and gather up parrot features and as many weapons as you think worthwhile, and we'll meet at the harpoons in the bow. No questions. Move! Knowing better than to argue with a direct command, she nodded respectfully and also departed. With a deep breath, and wondering exactly what he was getting them all into, Fitch looked in vain for a pair of trousers, and finding exactly none, headed for the deck instead. Arriving amidships, between the colossal wrought iron waterwheels that towered over him with their thick covering of ice and snow, Fitch had another inspired thought. He knew a little of ships of this class, having worked briefly on SS Unsinkable Modernity, just before it sank, and most were fitted with a giant periscope on the central mast, exactly for the purpose of seeing over low cloud. Heartened by hearing the heavy rumble of the engines grinding into life beneath his feet, he located the ornate brass eyepieces and gripped the icy side handles. He felt his spirits race as he first realised that looking through the scope, the weather had indeed changed, and above the cloud was now clear and impeccably blue sky. Swivelling the handle round, he first located Snook's astonishingly huge airship, clearly going nowhere in a hurry, with no sign of its engines running. Beyond that vessel, the crest of Cloud Island also loomed above the clouds, 
clearly visible in the late evening sunlight. Moving away from the periscope, he headed onwards towards the bows, some way distant yet, to prepare the harpoon guns. Although he could not see the stern of the great ironclad through the low-lying clouds, the smell of smoke was reaching his nostrils, and he assumed that fortitude had indeed started fires as instructed. Reaching the bow a minute or two later, he found and began to make ready the harpoons, relying on the muscle memory from years in the military to get the massive weapons ready to fire. With a sickening lurch, he felt the bow suddenly rise up a foot or two as the fires aft began to melt the ice field gripping the mighty steamship, causing the stern to drop a little. Time to unleash the mighty iron horses of her doughty engines one last time. His task, a little harder now given the incline of the deck and the occasional lurch as she tilted further backwards into the ice, Fitch located the forward speaking tube and flipped open its brass cap. Engine room, he yelled, and quickly put his ear to the tube. Standing by, came the distant shout by reply. Good man, he exclaimed. Engines full reverse, and then get yourself up here as fast as the devil himself. Come fiddle with your hosepipe, bucket mouth, came back the screech reply that Fitch took to be a confirmation of sorts. He slapped the lid back down, and with all the speed he could muster, found any ropes or lengths of cable he could, and secured them one by one to the third of the harpoons, and threw them back in the direction of the stern, in the hope it would aid the arrival of the others. By this time, the angle was approaching 30 degrees, and Fitch found himself back in the clouds. There was an astonishingly loud and stomach-churning sound of straining metal from the hull of the monstrous ship, as an acrid cloud of engine smoke engulfed him for a moment, and the deck lurched further off-level. Such was the extreme angle that Fitch was forced to hold on for dear life, while still trying to prop himself up into a workable position to fire the harpoons. The angle was nearly over 45 degrees, as Fitch wedged himself into the space between the harpoons and the arc of the bow itself. Swiveling them to port, in the position he knew he would need to fire to hit the airship when they cleared the clouds. The air was so thick with cloud, engine and fire smoke that it was now almost pitch black and Fitch was forced to half close his eyes. His only slight relief was that he could detect the light above the clouds coming ever nearer. Then his heart skipped a beat as the ship lurched once more and this time continued steadily moving. The stern now well submersed and the whole craft pivoting around the giant water wheels to push the bow ever further upwards. Fortitude, he called downwards, more in hope than expectation. Fidge, came back a choked cry, distant but not as far away as he had feared. This time the parrot had nothing to add. Relieved that at least one of them was in earshot, he added, Hold tight! Make fast to any rope hanging from my position. Let, let go for no one.
and, and nothing. He then tied himself to the last harpoon cable and braced once more, as with quite a fair amount of speed, the bow of the ship broke through the cloud and into the clear air above. Grunting and trying to breathe through the clearing smoke, he swiveled the gun, waiting for the movement of the bow to bring it in line with the airship, still floating forlornly, only a few hundred yards away. Here goes nothing, he muttered, and pulled the first harpoon fire lever. A great shower of sparks and an electrical explosion nearly blinded him, but the harpoon did not fire. Eyes forced shut by smoke and sparks, he fumbled for the second lever and pulled hard. Another dramatic bang, but this time the harpoon was away, streaking hard for the airship envelope. With no time to admire his shot, he pushed the final harpoon a little nearer vertical and bellowed downwards into the pitch black with every ounce of volume he could muster. Now, soldiers, hold fast! And pulled the final harpoon lever. A spark, a crackle, nothing. Save the air from the arcing bow whistling past his ears. The massive ship very nearly fully vertical in the water. Then a bang and a sickening lurch as the harpoon fired, arcing high into the air, dragging Fitch, ropes, cables, and possibly the others, into the air and out over the airship. As he flew, Fitch looked back seeing the great bow of the SS Unstoppable Progress fly past the vertical and begin to descend back into the clouds. Great plumes of white, grey and thick black smoke billowing in all directions. She was on her very last journey to the bottom of the great white. He just hoped it had all been worth it. He fancied he could indeed make out figures clinging onto the cables flying behind, but before he could think on it more, he reached the apogee of his flight and began to drop back through the icy air. Seconds later, he landed with a mighty thump on the welcoming canvas of Snook's giant airship. The great arcing cables started to fall on top of him, and half a heartbeat later, Fortitude and Smith laden with armaments, crash right on top and all around him. Something hard hit his head, and for the second time that day, he passed out cold. He came to a little later, and was pleased to see a cool blue sky above him, and feel a gentle breeze tickling his skin. He pulled himself upright, and realised he was atop the enormous airship, drifting and descending slowly, perhaps due to a puncture in one of its mighty gas bags, towards the relative safety of the now sunlit expanses of Cloud Island. Behind him, a great vertical plume of black smoke marked the last known position of the SS Unstoppable Progress. The mighty airship's engines were still motionless, 
They never did manage to get them going, thought Fitch. Fortitude had stitched them up good and proper. A movement caught his eye off to the right. He strained to see, and thought for a moment he must be seeing double, as quite a way off, on a strange pedal-powered ornithopter, there appeared to be two snooks, peddling frantically for all they were worth. How very odd, he thought, two of the rat-faced little blighters. And with this, he felt a sudden wave of dizziness, and promptly passed out yet again. Whilst Fitch lay unconscious, and the giant airship carried out a kind of slow-motion belly flop onto the plains of Cloud Island, Fortitude and Smith, still somehow having retained his stuffed parrot, released the king with the assistance of a company of New Albion Marines who had arrived from the marooned gunship in their own Navy airship. The island itself was thus retaken for the crown, and Carruthers Simpleton, still in his inadequate robe, clapped in irons. Despite frantic searching on the airship and island, no sign of Snook could be found, and it was feared that he had escaped to plot another day. The failure to capture Snook, and not much of a clue as to his motivation in kidnapping the king, uh, except perhaps as a lure to other forces of the crown, meant that the case was not resolved to everyone's liking. Most especially when the tale was relayed to Admiral Sherman, the dog shook her head and growled under her breath in annoyance. When it came time for them all to leave, Agent Fortitude and Chief Stoker Smith came to collect Fitch from his convalescent bedroll in what passed locally as a kind of hospital. How are you feeling, old chap? inquired Fortitude, resplendent in a yak fur coat, looking as though she'd just stepped off a cruise ship rather than being embroiled in the adventure that had just passed. Sore head, was all he could find the strength to mutter in reply. King? Safe, rescued, and rather taken with a whole escapade. Smith? Present and correct, and mighty happy to be finally back on dry land piped up Smith in his unnervingly cheery tones. I could eat a pickled tea, Cozy, he added in his strange parrot voice. Hmm, muttered Fitch, feeling his headache starting to throb again, and then finally inquired, Snook? Long gone, I'm afraid, reported Fortitude, with a little regret in her voice. There's two of the silly buggers, I tell you. Two, two, I tell you, squawked the parrot without being asked. Fitch raised an eyebrow vaguely in the stuffed bird's direction. For once, the silly old feathered nutter might actually be right, he muttered. But no one had a clue what he was on about. Well, that was certainly exciting. I will need a cup of cocoa before I retire tonight to let my pulse settle back a little. Tune in for more excitement next week as we bring you another instalment of Slumbertime Stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orbion. 
I wish you dreams of a bright future. All characters and stories are copyright to and performed by Darren Callow. With the exception of the character of Professor Paver Ion Yourself, created and performed by Catherine Paver. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production, Albion Radiophonic Corporation. <laughs>